0: Hey, if you'll stand with me uh, for the reading of God's Word. Uh, We're in Genesis chapter 2 this morning, uh, picking up where we left off. We're going to start reading at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so we're picking up in Genesis chapter 2 here. Um, And just kind of to do a recap of where we've been, review, make sure you know what's going on in case you haven't been with us. Um, We started kind of a a brief review of the first few chapters of Genesis. Here's the reason why. Uh, Because it's foundational. I mean, really, in so many ways, Genesis is foundational to our understanding of everything about Scripture, everything about who we are, who God is, why we're made the way we are, and everything. And so we have to understand Genesis in order to understand anything else about the Bible. We have to go there first. So in chapter 1, you see this panorama, right? As Jared kind of laid it out last week, you see uh, this wide-angle lens of all of creation, right? Every day of creation, God making, uh, God saying it's good, and then moving on to the next day and creating, okay? And then uh, in chapter 2, we see this zoom in on the creation of man specifically. Um, And that's not, you know, it's not like it's re, you know, saying it happened twice or something like that, that's not what's going on, okay? Chapter 1 is God created this world out of nothing by His Word, and then He created man and woman in His image. They were distinct from all His creatures uh, in, as Jared said last week, in their structure and in their function, in their being. They have personhood, so that's their structure. And then in their function, they have these abilities, right? They can reason, they have emotion uh, that makes them in the image of God. And then we saw that God rested from his work of creation, right? That was also part of that panorama because he was complete. He completed it. And that's not a I'm tired kind of resting. We recognize that God God didn't get tired from creating. Um, But he ceased because it was finished. It was done. He was done with that work of creation, and so he rested from it. That's important for us to recognize, too. We talked about that theme of rest. So now we're looking at chapter 2, and we have this zoom in. God makes man, he blesses him with this place to live, this garden, and he's walking with the man in the garden. Uh, We have that whole God's people and God's place under God's rule and blessing kind of picture. And as a little side note, this is just something that as I was um, thinking through this, and I talked with Jared some last week, uh, this was huge to me in my brain, so I want to share it with you. Uh, There's this picture of the garden being like a temple, okay? Um, Because as image bearers, mankind is created with kind of two roles, okay? We have a kingly role, and then we have a priestly role. And that's kind of weird. We're like, okay, what do you mean by that? Well, as a kingly role, we're stewarding the garden. We're taking care of what has been placed under our care. Then as a, in this priestly role, we're like living before the face of God in his presence. Uh, we're, basically, we're dwelling in the holy of holies, right? And then so when the fall happens, they get kicked out of the garden. And even throughout the, you know, throughout the history of Israel, you have this holy place Right, where there's cherubim on the curtain with swords saying, you can't come into this holy place. Right? You have to keep out of the garden now. And then Jesus, of course, allows us to return to that garden, at least partially. Right? He gives us the ability to be in the presence of God. And this is why Peter talks about the priesthood of a believer, right? that we are this royal priesthood, um, because we have this ability to serve before God again. And so, and then in Revelation, we have the fullness of that restored, right? We see the picture of the full kinghood, right? We're reigning with Christ and the full priesthood. We're in the presence of God, worshiping before him and serving him, right? That, the fullness of that will come back again. We'll be back in the garden, uh, you might say. And that'll be perfect rest, right? Perfect rest is this picture of us serving in our kingly and priestly roles perfectly before God. So now, okay, that was a, that was a bonus. That was extra. You don't even have to pay anything for it. So now, we see creation complete. God's made everything. With all that laid out, we can dive into here for the pinnacle of God's creation. So as we're looking at this text this morning, there are really, like I would say, three core ideas I want you to, to come away with. Now, we're going to talk about a lot of you know, pieces here, and there are many things that I could make the point of this, but I think the point of it has to be this. One, we were designed to live in community. That's the way God made us, to live in community. And the heart of community is marriage. The very heart of what it means to be to have community is marriage. Second, God made marriage for his glory, for our good, and as a beautiful illustration of the gospel. Third, the fall made marriage really hard. And it still is really hard. And the redemptive work of Christ is absolutely necessary to restore marriage to what it's supposed to be. So... That's kind of the three things I want you to really latch on to, and as we walk away today, I hope that's the the main idea that you are coming away with, okay? So, a question might be, why such an emphasis on marriage, right? Why is that? Well, for one, that's the focus of the text, right? And so, one of the, the great things about expository preaching, when we're just working through Scripture, is that whatever the point of the text is, the point of the sermon, so it isn't like, you know, I decided like, oh, I really want to give a sermon on marriage. I think I'll go to Genesis chapter 2 and talk about it. Like, no, we just happen to be here because this is what we've been preaching through. Uh, and, and it's awesome because, uh, you know, today's Father's Day. And so I think there's some applicable pieces here uh, for us to think about as we're celebrating fatherhood. But really, this isn't just about marriage, right? It speaks to all of society, to any human relationship there is. Any human relationship uh, is founded on this, because not everybody's married, right? Uh, Not everyone is going to be married, and that's okay. There are a lot of different reasons for that. If you aren't married and never will be, that doesn't mean that there's nothing in this passage for you to care about, right? There's absolutely something here for you, because all human relationships, all human relationships, spring from this first relationship between Adam and Eve. And so the fall didn't just break marriage. It didn't just break that one relationship right it broke all of them and so all relationships struggle now because of the fall and since we're sinners we have to have this redemptive work of Christ to restore every relationship not just marriage and yet God in his goodness right has given us human relationships including marriage as a blessing so even now while we struggle in them while they're hard they are a blessing to us they sanctify us they are good for us uh, and they hopefully, you know, as we're living in them, we're glorifying our God through them. But let's look, let's dive right into verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. <clears throat> now remember, we're in chapter 2. We're zoomed in on what was already set out in chapter 1. So we already know that man and woman were created. This isn't a surprise to us. Right? We're not like, oh, I wonder what God's going to do now. Right? We know he's about to create woman. Right? The suspense is, is not really there. That's okay. And we already know the story anyway. But the picture here is, notice the words. Throughout this whole creation account, God's spoken things into existence, and at the end of each day, we see that recurring phrase, And God saw that it was good, right? And now, here, in verse 18, God says, it is not good. Now be careful. Be very careful, right? You have to read the rest of the sentence because this is not God saying that he made a mistake. No. Um, He's pointing out that this work of creation isn't complete yet, right? When each day when he said it is good, his saying it was good was saying, that's done. I made the sun, the moon, the stars. That's done. I made the sea. That's done. I made the animals. I made the birds. That's done. It's good. He made a man. It wasn't good because it wasn't finished yet. It wasn't complete While the creation of man was the pinnacle of his creation, he had more in mind. It wasn't good enough for him to rest yet. He says, it's not good for man to be alone. And this is very important to recognize. It's not good for mankind to be alone. We were designed to be communal creatures. We were designed to dwell in community, in relationships with other people. I mean, just think about recently with the whole coronavirus stuff, right? Right? Part of what made that so hard, is still making it hard at some level, um, is this loss of community. That's why, I mean, video conferencing became so important, right? Zoom became a household word because we needed, we craved that community, that connection with other people. We know that, like, even apart from that, loneliness and isolation, right, that sense of being by yourself, that's, that's a huge issue in our world. We, we don't like being alone. We crave human intimacy. And we crave it because it's a good thing. It's something that we were designed for. And it, really, to be honest, the American culture is kind of a, a problem when it comes to this. Because we put so much emphasis on individualism that we often like forget about community. We forget about the importance of dwelling together with others. We have to remember that we were created to serve another not just to serve ourselves so yeah okay you have to make sure that you're healthy and sane right all those things that's really important Um, but there are people out there who preach a a false gospel of self-love and they say it's all about like you got to make sure that you're good that you're happy that you're healthy that everything's perfect in your world right it's all about just finding yourself and finding your joy and finding your happiness no it's not Biblically, that, that is an anti-biblical idea. Biblically, the idea is that you are about loving others, that you are about service of others. It's about the happiness of somebody else. It's about the, the honoring of someone else, not the honoring of yourself. So community is absolutely vital, and it's very biblical. And the core means, the core like piece of what makes up community is the marriage between a man and a woman. Marriage is the first and most basic human relationship, the foundation of all other relationships in our world. Second half of verse 18 says, I will make a helper fit for him. So God sees it's not good for man to be alone. I'm going to make a helper that's fit for him. Verse 19, Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man that see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds and to the heavens, the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. All right, so picture this. God, you know, God sits Adam down in the garden. He says, I'm going to send all these animals to you, okay? And all the animals are coming by, and he's like giving them names, right, naming them, which I would love to see like Adam's list of what he named the animals Uh, because, you know, our names now are like... So far, removed from that. That's another thing. Okay. He names them all, and none of them were suitable to help him. And then, we, okay, animals are helpful, right? People have been using, like, oxen and horses and donkeys and all that stuff to do work to help for a long time, since biblical times. We see those things in Scripture. So it's not that they weren't helpers. They could be. They were made to be helpers. But God says that Adam needs a helper fit for him. Now, again, this isn't like God's surprised. It isn't like he like got all these animals coming by, and he's like, okay, maybe this will be the one. Come on, come on. No, it didn't work, right? He's not, he's not surprised that none of these animals were helpers fit for Adam. He, he, that's not a surprise to him. In fact, I think it's more likely that he's doing this to show Adam that there's something missing, right? He's helping Adam see that he needs something more to complete his ability to do his work properly in this garden. He needs a helper that can complete him. Now, we know, we know what's coming, right? We know God's about to make Eve. But think about, just pause, and think about this helper concept for a second with me. And first, I want to establish what helper doesn't mean. Because a helper is not simply someone to share the workload, right? If that's what, if that's what this was, then yeah, those animals could have fulfilled that role right? Animals could probably have shared the workload with Adam pretty well, and he could have gotten on just fine. No. In order to be fit for him, this helper would need to also be made in God's image. It would need to be a helper who was made to match him. They would need to share that image in order to fulfill this kingly and priestly role that they had in the garden. This helper would need to honor his calling. Right to tend to the garden and to serve the Lord. This helper would need to share in his enjoyment of the fruit of the garden and of the presence of the Lord there. This helper would need to heed that prohibition, to not eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. She would be his companion in a far deeper way than a dog is our companion, right? Companionship is at the heart of marriage because there's mutual support and care and love between those two. One other thing to note here, the picture is not of her needing him. Realistically, as it says here, it's him needing her. He needed someone to complete him. And this has been really distorted throughout time, through different cultures, right? We still see elements of this distortion today. There are some who have that mindset that men are basically just the greatest gift to women, uh, that women have to have a man to survive, right? Right? But biblically, it's actually the opposite. Biblically, women are the greatest gift to men. The first and greatest gift that God gave to men was a woman. Because that man needed a woman to complete him. So let's look at verse 21 and see the creation of the woman. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Okay, pay attention to the means of creation here. Because this is a different type of creation. For the first few days of creation, God speaks and it is. right. He says, let there be and there is. Then when he came to making the man, he takes the dirt and molds him and crafts him right, into his image. And he breathes the breath of life into him. And God replicates that type of creation with the woman. I mean, like, realistically, God, being who he is, could have just, like, said, let there be another one of these, but slightly different. And it would have been so. Right? He could have done that. But he chose to use a part of the man and to craft a woman from the same material that the man was made from. And I'm not saying that God was careless in the rest of creation. Like he was just like, well, I am make that stuff. And then he's like, really. fucked. But you have to recognize that this is a special care, right? special attention and care into the creation of man and woman. And that sharing of the same substance is really vital because they're both made in the image of God. They are both sharing like the fingerprints of God. He molded them. He crafted them into his image. And they have a unique role in creation. And because they are both made in that image, they, they have an equality, right? They are created with equal value as creatures made by the hands of God. Uh, Matthew Henry uh, made this really cool observation about God's choice of using Adam's rib to craft Eve. He says, Not made out of his head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. Beloved. She was created to match him, to complete him, and to walk beside him. And, we should note, God only made one woman for Adam. He made one woman for Adam. He could have just hit copy-paste, had Adam 2 to help Adam 1. We're good, right? There you go. Adam, you have a helper now. He didn't. Right? He could have made like three eaves, Yeah? Adam had a bunch of ribs. Just saying. So three's better than one, right? No, God made one woman for the man. And from that, we can see something that's really important God's design for marriage is monogamous, one, and it's heterosexual, woman. One man, one woman. That's God's design for a marriage. And there's plenty of scripture to back that up, right? We can see God's prohibition uh, of polygamy in Leviticus 18. You shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister, uncovering her nakedness while her sister is still alive. And then also in Deuteronomy 17, and he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver or gold, right? And we, of course, that would be a topic for another sermon where we could talk about and, and dive into why in the world did Abraham have two wives? Why, why did all these people throughout history, right, through biblical history, have more than one wife? Well, just because we see it happening doesn't mean that God wanted it. You know, God designed it that way, right? Um, he said, don't do it. The fact that they did it, we see it happening, just shows that God used sinners, okay? Also, homosexuality in Leviticus 18. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Uh, in Romans chapter 1, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Okay? So both in, throughout Scripture, right? Scripture confirms this, but we can see it in the moment of creation, right here when God made man and woman He established a design and an intention for marriage, and that design and intention is one man and one woman. Verse 23, God brings Eve before Adam, right? And you can kind of picture that moment of him being like, wow, there we go. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And in your your Bibles, you may notice that's kind of formatted differently, right? That's because it's a poem, right? It's it's basically Adam's like singing a song of joy that God has brought him, this woman, this helper that is fit for him. And he recognizes that she's special, right? She's bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She's made in the same image that I'm made in, of the same stuff that I'm made with. She's what I need. She completes me. She has this equal value as an imager of God. But at the same time, we also see the establishment of this structure, right? Because we see the man name her. He demonstrates this God-given authority by naming. Everybody's getting a little tense, right? Because here it comes, right? How can we talk about it? We have to. Uh, The concept of male headship in marriage is, is difficult right it is it's controversial it's something that the church as a whole has been wrestling with for years but it's a biblical concept and we have to consider it and we have to understand it so let's just think about some passages from the new testament to help kind of shine a little bit of light here on the old first corinthians chapter 11 but i want you to understand that the head of every man is christ the head of a wife is her husband and the head of christ is god Okay, pretty clear statement there. 1 Peter chapter (coughs) 3. Sorry. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry or clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So, again, this is kind of hard, so I want to be as clear as I can be. Hierarchical structures, structures of authority, are not measures of worth. People have distorted and abused all kinds, you know, all these structures, right? They've messed it up since the beginning. But the concept of authority and submission has nothing to do with value. It doesn't. We've already pointed out that woman was created because man needed her. We see that woman is the last creation of God, the pinnacle of his creation. She's made in the same image with the same stuff that the man was made out of. She possesses every bit as much value and dignity as the man. But God is a God of order. And he knew that there had to be a structure of authority in this creation. So within the marriage relationship that God designed, he established the man as the head. And all of society ultimately is built upon that kind of authority structure, right? Any place that you go, there has to be some sort of hierarchical structure. Otherwise, it falls apart. So yes, this does call a wife to submission. As pointed out earlier, it calls her to honor her husband's calling, to share his enjoyment, and to heed the prohibition to not eat of the fruit in the garden. But just as importantly, it calls the husband to headship. He's given a position of authority, and he's supposed to lead and guide and look after those who are under his care. And really, this leads right into what I want us to see in the next verse, verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. The man is to, as as another scripture says, leave and cleave, right? He is to step out from under the authority of his parents and become the head of his own family. And that comes with responsibility, the responsibility to care for, to guide, to protect, to love his wife. And then that authority is expanded when they have children. So for those of you who are married, I'm sure that I could come and I could watch your marriage for a few days and I could point out many ways how uh, the wives were not submissive or supportive, but I'm sure I would say just as many ways that the husbands are failing to exercise the headship that God has called them to exercise. And this, and this is so important, okay? This is where the image of Christ in his church is so, so beautiful and so helpful for us. We know that God has made marriage as this gospel picture. Remember this verse from Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church." So this structure, the structure that God has designed in marriage, is there to illustrate the beauty of the gospel to us. A husband should care for, guide, love, sanctify his bride, purify her to the point that he's laying down his life for her, just as Christ does for the church. And the wife is called to love her husband and seek to trust and follow his leadership, to submit to his decisions, to depend on him, to care for and protect her. Just as the church is called to submit to, and seek, and trust and follow the leadership of our head, the church of our head, Christ. And then this authority structure, get this, is made even more profound by this next line in the verse: "And they shall become one flesh. One flesh." Just hold on. y'all, just think about that for a second, okay? They shall become one flesh. You've heard it a lot. I want you to think about it. Just think about it. Go ahead. You know what the greatest commandments are, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. In marriage, your spouse is not only your closest neighbor, your spouse is yourself. They are sharing the same flesh as you. So when you're made into one flesh, that calling is made even clearer. That calling to love your neighbor as yourself. It's a supernatural thing, by the way, right? This, this one flesh union isn't something that, that is a natural thing. It's supernatural, When you love your wife, you're loving yourself. As a husband, you should be putting her interest above your own. Why? Because she is you. And more than that, because God's called you to. And loving him looks like loving her rightly. We have to understand that like a life of sacrificial service is what you're called to. Not a life of self-indulgence. So for being a head as a husband, it's not just about provision, putting food on the table, having a house, right? It's cherishing. It's serving your wife in tangible, real ways. It's not coming home and expecting dinner to be ready. and no, No, that's not the point. The point is this life of service, this life of sacrifice, looking for ways that you can serve your wife every single day. Seeking to understand what communicates that love to her better. Because when you fail to love her, when you fail to lead her, you're actually failing to love yourself and you're failing to love God rightly. As a wife, you should be honoring your husband as you would honor yourself. There's nothing more devastating to your witness and to your marriage than disrespect of a husband. It isn't. And you're no, you're no more closer to Jesus. You can't be closer to Christ than when you're treating your husband with respect and honor. When you harbor bitter, resentful, evil thoughts, when you talk bad about him in front of others, when you put him down to his face, you are doing that to your Lord. When I say love God, love one another, marriage is ground zero for that being put into practice. That's where it happens. So you see, this is, I mean, this is a supernatural thing. And it calls you to way more than just love and respect, right? <laughs> no problem. Many of you have probably read that book, right? It's not that simple. This calling is, is a calling of self-sacrifice. But this one flesh union is also permanent, I, I like working with wood, like I, I love woodworking, and um, I have limited experience, um, but I did work at a piano shop for like 10 years, so I've dealt with lots of different types of like adhesives, okay? Uh, y'all are like, what is he talking about? No, I'll get there, okay? One of the greatest human creations, let me tell you, is wood glue. Just trust me. Now you're like, hold on a second, Gorilla Glue or Super Glue or whatever, you know, yeah, you're going to have a, a, something to say, no, that's not the best one. Let me tell you, yes, Wood glue, it's a, it's a one-purpose thing, right? It does one job, but it does that job exactly the way it was designed to. It does it really well. If you take two pieces of wood and you put that wood glue on properly and you stick them together and you clamp them, it's not coming apart. It won't. Like if you, if you do something, try to break it, the wood will break before that joint will break. That's how good wood glue is. But still, that glue isn't perfect, Right? Over time, it, it, it will grow weaker. Um, moisture and temperature and movement, all that kind of stuff can affect that. But when a man and woman are joined in marriage, it's not the picture of two pieces of wood being glued really close together. Right? We're not saying you get stuck right here and you have to stay stuck for a really long time. We're saying you become one flesh. Right? I can't even demonstrate that with my hands. They can't. I can't make my hands become one. can't do that. It's a supernatural thing. When I glue two pieces of wood together, there's still two pieces of wood. In marriage, you become one, one piece, and that is permanent. Those two pieces of wood, yeah, they can come apart someday. But in a marriage, it's built to be forever. Marriage is permanent. You make a covenant before God. Old Testament covenant making was this. Scary deal, right? Because they would cut these animals in half and lay them down. And then they would pronounce the, the covenant vows, the obligations, and then they would walk through those pieces basically saying, if I break this covenant, may this be done to me. May I be ripped in half in this way. Because you know what? If you break the covenant of marriage, that's exactly what's happening. You're ripping yourself in half. That one flesh is torn, and it wasn't made to be torn. Marriage is meant to be for as long as you live. Verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is beautiful intimacy between husband and wife. There was no hiding. There was no need to hide. There was nothing to hide. There was openness. There was honesty. There was this sharing of life together, sharing everything together. And this isn't just about them not wearing clothes, right? We get hung up on that word naked. Don't. That's not the point. The clothing is just an outward representation of a spiritual reality. There was no shame here. As imagers of God, the man and woman had nothing to be ashamed of. We know that because with the fall, the first thing they do is hide. Right? They realized that they were naked and they hid because they were ashamed. They had to be clothed because of their shame. We should long for that kind of marriage, right? We should seek to be naked and unashamed in the sense that there's nothing for us to hide. Because we all, I mean, that's our tendency, right? Our tendency is to hide, to hide our thoughts, to hide our actions, to hide our sins especially. But marriage is a place of honesty and vulnerability. It was designed that way. And Christ's work has made it more that way. Because, of course, we are sinners who are married to sinners. So living in light of all of this that we've talked about this morning is, is not just difficult. It's impossible. In our natural state, it's not as if we can say, like, well, I'm just going to try harder and be a better married person. No. No. We struggle to live in community with others because we're selfish, we're individualistic, we only value number one, right? Yeah, that's absolutely true. And no amount of I'm going to try harder to care about others is going to magically fix that. In marriage, we struggle to live within that authority structure, right? Husbands fail to leave, wives fail to submit. But it's no amount of like I'm going to try to lead better or I'm going to try to be more submissive. That's not going to work. We struggle to stand firmly upon the permanent, heterosexual, monogamous nature of marriage. But no amount of, well, I'm going to make a more solid Facebook post about marriage is going to help that. No amount of, I'm going to stay married even longer is going to fix that. We struggle to live as one flesh. We struggle to be open and honest in our marriages. And that's why we need Jesus Christ came to bring reconciliation. He came to bring redemption. He came to reconcile sinners. He came to reconcile relationships. He came to reconcile marriages. He came to redeem brokenness and to make all of it right. He made us new creations. He called us to these new standards. He he changed our attitudes. He changed our actions. He changed us through the power of the Holy Spirit. He causes our relationships to become new again. Marriage is renewed through the work of Christ. And it's being renewed, and it will be renewed. Marriage is designed to preach. It's designed to preach the message of Christ and His church. It is a perfect picture of the gospel. A husband loving and leading his wife, a wife respectfully submitting and following her husband as a picture of Christ in the church. And just as Jesus loves an unlovely bride, so we should love our beautiful but still sinful brides. And just as the church is called to respect and follow and trust Christ because He gave His life for her, so wives should respect and follow and trust their husbands. And this is all grounded in the way that God created the first man and the first woman. Way back in the beginning, right here in chapter 2 of Genesis, this is the, this is the grounding for all of that. The gospel makes sense because of the way that God created man and woman. He designed marriage for the good of humanity, He designed the marriage for His glory. His plan was good. His plan is perfect, just like His creation was, just like it will be when He makes it new again in the end. Let's pray. Father God, we are humbled by Your Word. In this calling this morning, as as we think about what Your Word has to say to us about the creation of man and woman, this is a challenge to us. This is a struggle for us because we see our sin. We see how we fail to live up to the standard. And we know that we can't on our own, that we need your work in us, that it requires the work of Christ to change and renew and restore our marriages. I pray for the husbands who are here. I pray that you will help them to be the head of their family. Help them to lead and direct. I pray for the wives who are here that you will help them to honor and love their husbands, to submit to them as you have called them to. I pray that you will help us see that, that we are equal in value before you, that you have made us in your image. Help us. Help us, Father, to trust you. Help us to lean on you. Help us to not lean on our own understanding or to strive... Uh, to, to make this on our own, but help us recognize that Christ has loved his church and we are called. We are called to live out um, this reality as revealed here in Genesis each and every day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll stand.